0: Well, by way of introduction, I want us to consider a story from the Old Testament, not very far removed from what we're reading there in, in the book of Joshua. A story recorded in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. The Israelites, as you probably know, we're in constant battle with the Philistines. It was an ongoing situation, ongoing war between the Israelites and the Philistines. We typically only remember David and Goliath, but it was a constant thing. And in those early chapters of 1 Samuel, the Israelites get a broad idea We want to win the battle. So, how can we guarantee that we'll win the battle? I know. We'll take the ark of the covenant. The symbol of God's manifest presence on the earth, we'll take that out of the tabernacle at Shiloh, we'll carry it with us into battle and this will guarantee that we'll win the battle. I mean, we're we're taking God with us. Well, you know, it didn't quite work out that way. They go into battle, not only are they defeated, but the ark of the covenant is captured and taken away. The Philistines take the ark back to Ashdod. They put the, the, the Ark of the Covenant there in the temple of Dagon and you know what happens. The next day they come and Dagon is face down on the floor before the Ark of the Covenant. The, the symbol of God's manifest presence on the earth. You can imagine the irony. That the guy who discovers Dagon on his face has to call to some of his friends. Hey, come help me. You get that side, I'll get this side. On three we'll lift. One, two, three. Let's stand our God back up in the temple before they go home. They come back the next morning. He's fallen down again, except this time his head's lopped off. His hands are chopped off. And you can imagine again the irony. Let's mix up some sort of a paste or something. We've got we to gotta stick this guy back together. All the while, we know that there were plagues that were surging through the, the Philistine camp there in Ashdod. So they decide this symbol of the manifest presence of Yahweh on the earth, it's not safe for it to be here. Let's send it to Gath. So they send it to Gath. Same thing happens. Plagues begin to infiltrate the people. We don't want it here. Let's take it from Gath. Send it to Ekron. It goes to Ekron. The very same thing happens. Plagues begin to surge throughout the camp. And it took seven months for them to realize, we just need to send this thing back to where it came from. It's not safe for the manifest presence of Yahweh to be in our camp. They send it back by way of Beth Shemesh. And the men of Beth Shemesh are excited. They they tear down the, the cart. They sacrifice the cows. They make an offering to Yahweh. And it seems like what is implied is they get a little curious and they want to look inside the ark. It says that they gazed upon it or looked inside of it and 70 men are killed. One statement I think summarizes all of their thinking. In 1 Samuel 6, 20 and 21, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? That is Yahweh, this holy God. And to whom shall He go up away from us? In other words, we've got to find somebody to take this thing, because it's not safe here either. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you they recognized that it was a very dangerous thing to be in the presence of God's symbol of His manifest presence on the earth among men. While it seemed harmless, and even the ark was an inanimate object in itself, because God had consecrated that gold-plated box, to use the language of Leviticus 10, among those who were near it, It was to be sanctified so that before all people, God would be glorified. You want to glorify God? Then treat this thing with the respect that God has laid upon it. The manifest presence of Almighty God amongst the inhabitants of the earth is no small matter. It is dangerous to find yourself in the presence of the symbol of God's manifest presence on the earth. Now we don't have a tabernacle or a temple or an ark, but we know that in the present age there's nowhere that God promises His presence to be manifest more powerfully than in His church, especially when we are assembled like we are today. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you found yourself in a very serious situation. It's not a light thing to be found amongst the inhabitants of the assembly of the firstborn and to, to treat it lightly, to treat it with something less than what God has placed upon the assembly and honor less than what God requires. You've often heard preachers say you need to do business with God. Here's the truth. Every one of us will do business with God here today. Everyone does business with God. All of us. Because He's promised His presence in the gathering of His people. And so to come into the gathering of His people is a very serious thing. We all will do business with God. And the world might struggle to see anything special about the church. They look at us. They think this is crazy. They think this is a really odd thing that we do. But what the Philistines learned and what the men of... Beth Shemesh learned is still true. It's a dangerous thing to find yourself in close proximity to the society of God's presence among men. Now in our study of the Revelation, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the church. The society of God's presence among men portrayed as the temple of God, the altar, the worshipers, the court, the holy city, the two witnesses and two olive trees and lampstands. So far we've seen the church is distinguished, has been marked off by God, consecrated, The church is kept and given over. The church is a witness against the world. And the church we saw two weeks ago has been and is being filled with God's Spirit. Now we take one more step in verses 5 and 6. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. The first thing that I want you to notice here is the situation described as one of conflict from without. Two times in verse 5 we read this phrase, If anyone would harm them. If anyone would Harm them. The them points back to what we just saw in verse 4. The olive trees and lampstands, which are the explanation of what we read about in verse 3. The two witnesses. The symbol is being used to describe the New Testament church in the time between the two advents of Christ. In other words, if anyone would harm the bride of Christ. Now, men, how would you finish that sentence? If anyone would harm my wife, dot, 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 you fill in the blanks. The situation is one of antagonism, one of vitriol toward the church of Jesus Christ. Now throughout the book we've seen that in the present state of the church, until Christ returns, there will be tribulation. Christ promised this. In the world you will have tribulation. In Revelation 1, John said, I'm your partner in the tribulation. We watch throughout the churches in chapters 2 and 3. We see these churches are enduring tribulation. This is to be expected. We're seeing here the same thing that we've seen many times. We saw in chapter 6 as the white horse, the the gospel goes forth conquering and to conquer, riding forth victoriously. What comes after except... Persecution and suffering. Here we see the exact same thing. The two witnesses begin to declare the gospel and they're going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what comes? Persecution and suffering. It's the same thing repeated throughout the book, ultimately seven times in the seven different recapitulations of the same picture. Notice the result of this animosity is an equal and opposite recompense. First, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Now, remember, anytime you see that something coming from the mouth, we ought to expect some sort of verbal communication or verbal proclamation is, is being re- re- relayed here. That's the picture. We'll, we'll get to it In a minute. But notice what happens. Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Verse 6, they have power to shut the sky, to bring famine. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to bring every kind of plague. The word that's power here should be translated authority. They have the authority to bring these famines and these plagues, to shut the sky during the days of their prophesying, the duration of their ministry, which is how long? 42 months. 1,260 days. Three and a half years. They have the power, the authority to turn the water to blood and bring every other kind of plague. Now, in order to come to a conclusion about what this picture is meant to teach us, we have to ask, like always, where does this language come from? The book of the Revelation references the Old Testament Scriptures more than any other book in the New Testament. All of this language points us to the ministries of two other witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Moses was the messenger of God through whom the ten plagues came upon Egypt in Exodus 7-10. through we also know that when Moses was opposed in what we would typically refer to as Korah's Rebellion, number 1625, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. During the ministry of Elijah, twice in 2 Kings chapter 1, somebody comes to speak to the prophet. And Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Two times. Finally, the third guy got, got the picture and came humbly before the man of God. It was also Elijah in 1 Kings 17 who said, verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand... There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah shut up the sky. For how long? Three and a half years. These references are pointing to the ministries of two other men. Two other witnesses of God. The question now is, what was the original context of those men that makes these references perfect to bring them and apply them in this symbolic way in the book of the Revelation. With the ten plagues, what was happening? Pharaoh would not listen to Moses speaking through Aaron, the messenger of God. He would not listen, would not heed the word of Yahweh, and therefore the plagues came. In Numbers 16, verse 28, Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. They were challenging Moses' authority to be a messenger of God. and Moses says, I'll show you that I'm a messenger of God. The ground opens up, swallows up a multitude, and then fire comes out and consumes 250 more. In verse King 16, just before Elijah shut up the sky for three and a half years, we read... Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The shutting of the sky was judgment upon Ahab and the nation of Israel. With each of these men, these judgments from God plagues, famine, fire, consuming these judgments came specifically to validate their divine authority as messengers of God. And they came against those who refused to submit to the God of the messengers. Now it's interesting to point out that in none of these situations did the power to execute these judgments lie in the hands of the messenger absolutely. The messenger was merely a means. A personal, substantial, physical, present means through which the judgment Came. The supernatural activities were always carried out by God. God's messenger, God's message, God's power acting against those who reject the message and the messenger. In the original settings, the fire, famine, and plagues were real. Real end-time acts of judgment coming upon people in the natural world. These historical references then are being used to teach us a lesson about divine Judgment as it comes upon those who are enemies of the church. That is, those who refuse to submit to the God of, their messen- of, God of the messengers, which will be manifested in their rejection of the messengers of God. Now, these physical acts of divine judgment lay a precedent for using these same images later when they're not literal. Those were literal, actual, end time physical acts. Fire literally came down. Plagues literally happened. But later on in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we read these words, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would. The fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Notice now in this passage, the Lord's words coming from the mouth of the messenger are a fire. The people are the wood. The fire, the word of the Lord, comes out and is going to consume the people. The judgment to be actually in time executed is a foreign nation coming and attacking them. But the, the message comes as a judgment as well. We see in this passage that the image of the fire consuming the people is paralleled with the word from the mouth of the prophets. In other words, there is a sense in which the preaching of Jeremiah was a burning judgment that paved the way for what was to later come. So if we add Jeremiah to the mix, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses, and there are others we could go, other passages that use fire this way. We see that this is the picture of, of or the picture of fire coming and consuming those who oppose God and his message, along with other plagues and famines, doesn't have to be literal. Have you ever seen anyone blow fire out of their mouth and consume their enemies? It's never happened. Not once. They don't have to be literal plagues and uh, literal famines. They're, they're used to symbolize the judgments of God. For Moses and Elijah against those who refuse to obey the messenger of the Lord. For Jeremiah, the judgment came through his preaching. His preaching was the fire. Now we bring all of that back into Revelation chapter 11. I think you can already begin to see the connections between God's message, God's messenger, and the judgment that is to come upon those who refuse to heed the message. What's being described here is not the final judgment. This is not a reference to actual physical killing or natural plagues and famine. Remember, it's meant to teach us a theological truth. It's apocalyptic literature. It's showing us God's perspective on what's happening down here. God's perspective on those who would harm His saints. And remember, the church has been given authority. The right to act in a legal capacity, an official capacity, as a means of judgment upon men who seek to harm them. So we could put it in the form of a question. How does God in the heavens, looking down upon the children of men, how does He see those people who are opposing His church? He sees them in the present time undergoing judgment. We, on the earth, can also see it in their opposition to the church. When we read this passage, we kind of want to imagine this back and forth scenario that we're we're preaching and then people you know, throw rocks or they want to persecute and then we breathe out fire and it consumes them and then they, they come back again and we breathe out. That's not the picture. It's, it's not meant to, to show us a, a historical timeline of events. It's showing us that when people come against the church, that in itself is an end time judgment from God. The, the church in the present time has been given power this is the best way I could think to, term, to, to phrase this. Power unto judgment, particularly as she fulfills her task in preaching the gospel. Now again, by power, we're talking about authority. Legal right. Bestowal of the right of divine representation. Think of it in the, in the way we see it very often. A police officer... Has authority delegated to him. He is not the law, but the way that you treat him is, is you're acting against the law. He's the physical representative of the law when he comes up to your window and rolls it down or whatever. At, at any point, you're interacting with the law through that messenger. In the same way, the church has been given the right, the authority to act as a divine representative on the earth. The church. And only the church. No other institution in the world has this authority. No parachurch ministry. No denomination. No cemetery. C- cemetery. Is that a fruity and slip? Seminary. Only the church has received the stamp from Christ her head to act as His ministerial ambassador on the earth. And one's interaction with the church, which can only happen, by the way, through the local church, not the the invisible church. It can only happen with the local church. One's interaction with the church is a display of their interaction with Christ Himself. We've been given that authority. Nobody else has it. And this is a power unto judgment. Again, not that the church actually executes the judgment. But we stand as a representative body. We exist and give occasion for God's judgment to be manifest on the earth. To put it another way, and, and this is, I'm going to break this down even further. An actual authoritative divine declaration of one standing with God is manifest in time through their relationship with and response to the church and her message. Let me say that again. An actual, authoritative, divine declaration of one standing with God is manifest in time through their relationship with and response to the church and her message. Now in our text, we're talking about We're looking at this from the the negative standpoint. Those who would harm the church. Those who are intentionally antagonistic. Those who oppose the church. For those people, in time, when they oppose the church, an actual authoritative divine declaration of their standing with God is manifested in time in that relationship to and response to the church and her message. But it goes both ways, positive and negative. The blessing is for those who find themselves within the pale of God's church. The judgment comes against those who find themselves outside of God's church. To put it even more simply, we we might ask, where does this person stand with God? Do they oppose the church? That's all that needs to be said. God has already shown us His ruling. We know it through their interaction with the church. Let me go a little further and break break all of these words down. This heavenly edict is actual. That is to say, it is real. It is substantive. It's not hypothetical. It's not merely notional. This is not merely in the realm of our opinion or our interpretation. It is an actual divine declaration. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now you'll remember when we went through that text, the language wouldn't fit well for English, but it would be better translated, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, what Christ is saying there is that the censures, the disciplinary actions, and approvals of a true church are pronouncements of what has already been decided in heaven. God is the judge. The church is the messenger of God's verdict. Now from the perspective of the one outside of the church... As they interact with the church for good or for bad, they are interacting with God's messenger, God's delegated representative. And so to come against the church is to come against God in a real, actual opposition. Therefore, in return, an actual verdict is passed upon them as real as heaven itself. You oppose the church, you're opposing God. Gamaliel knew this, right? We might be found opposing God. This heavenly edict is also authoritative. The authority that has been given to the church is delegated, but it's real. The church has been accredited by one, the only one that is vested with the authority to accredit the church, that is Christ Himself. We talk about accreditation and schooling. What we're asking is Has the government decided that your school is a real school? That's accreditation. Christ, our King, has accredited his church, has given this authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has ascended into the heavens and given his spirit to whom? His church. To act as his divine delegate. On the earth, And we just read in that text, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given not to Peter, not to some invisible church that no one can actually identify, but to the local church. The local church has been given the delegated authority of Jesus Christ to carry out His ministry on the earth. We are His body on the earth. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a single local church, and said, you are... The church, the body of Christ. Not, you are a part of this body. That's true in a sense. But you are the body. Here, this is the body. Therefore, one's relationship to the local church is a showing forth of their relationship to Christ. And for those who would harm the church, come against the church, oppose the church, they can't get off the hook by saying, well, we love Jesus, we just hate the institutionalized church. Christ says, that's my body you're talking about. That's my wife you're talking about. Watch it when you speak of my bride. When you oppose her, you oppose me. Opposition to the church carries with it an authoritative sentence from Christ. This edict is not only actual and authoritative, but it's divine. That means it comes from God. If we see somebody hating, opposing the church, coming against the gospel, we don't have to wonder what God thinks about the matter. We've already been given God's mind on the matter. We know God's mind because we have God's Word. What does He say? Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. You mess with them, you mess with me. This is not merely man's opinion. This is God's verdict. This opposition itself is a declaration. An open statement of truth for anyone who has eyes to see it. Here's the point. Here's the whole point of the sermon. When they oppose, that opposition is the judgment. That's the manifestation. They are declaring where they stand with God. And God is declaring where He stands before them when they oppose the church. It's it's manifested. It's made known among men in the world that now is where these people stand with God as they interact with the church. Whether they like it or not, whether they realize it or not, this is how it works. They do this, and this divine declaration happens in time. Now, not later. When they oppose we see their standing with God. At that moment, the declaration is made. In other words, we don't have to wait until the final day to find out if, if those who are enemies of God are actually going to, to make the cut or not. In Matthew 26, at the judgment seat, we don't have any mention of Christ going around and saying, okay, uh, I think you're going to be a sheep, and um, uh, you over there are sheep. No, no the, in Matthew 13, we don't see them saying... Um, Who's going to be wheat and tares? Do you see any? No, Christ already sees it. It's already known to Him and we can see it. That final day will simply be the day of separation. But we can even see even now that God is handing men over through their opposition to the church. The wrath of God is revealed now. Men are being handed over to reprobation now to be culturally... Relevant when civil authorities oppose Christ's churches this very day, we are being given a front row seat to where they stand before God. They are showing themselves enemies of God. They're already being judged and they are being prepared for and made ripe for a final judgment. If they do not repent, it's being shown forth. We see it through their relationship the church by observing and examining the facts concerning a person's interaction with the body of Christ, the institutional church. Here's the shocking thing. Somebody doesn't have to be handed over to an openly hostile, reprobate mind displayed in all of the vile fruits of sodomy and sexual perversion listed in Romans 1 for us to see their true colors. All they have to do is oppose the church. Show their relationship with the church. That would actually be, as I said several weeks ago, that sloppy churchmanship is the harbinger of apostasy. I would say here that relationship with the church is the doorway to being eventually handed over to a reprobate mind. It starts there. It's the gateway. We also see it in the response, their response to the message of the church. As we proclaim the gospel and the full counsel of God, we can ask: do they embrace the gospel? Or not? Are they displaying in themselves the the spiritual application of the Gospel or not? Then that settles the matter if not. If If not, we can see right where they stand with God in that moment. An actual, authoritative, divine declaration of one standing with God is manifested in time through their relationship with and response to the church and her message. So if you're here today in the midst of the assembly and you hear the truths of God's Word, and you hear God's Gospel being set before you, and you sit there and you say, I just don't think that's for me. Then as you think that thought, you need to hear God's gavel of judgment dropping in His court. The verdict is being displayed. He's saying, see there? You're under condemnation even now. You walked in the door with the wrath of God looming over your head and you'll walk right out the door with even more wrath if you do not throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. For those people who have decided that's just not for me. It would be better to sit at home. Stay home than to come into here and to heap judgment upon yourself week after week after week. It is a dangerous thing To find yourself in close proximity to God's presence among men. It is serious. It's even worse to oppose. The the language of 1 John 2.19 says, They went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So that it could be shown. 1 Corinthians 11. "There, There have to be factions so that those who are genuine will be shown. The division comes between the righteous and the wicked as they separate themselves from the people of God. And how else could it be? We're talking about one's relationship with God. A relationship that can only take place through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Christ is set forth, Romans 10, Christ is set forth and brought near through the preaching of the Gospel. He's he's brought near. You don't have to go find Him. In the proclamation of the gospel, Christ is brought and set forth for the taking. Take Him. Take Him. That's the gospel message. Take Him. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. The stewardship of preaching the gospel, of bringing Christ, setting Him before men, has only been given to the church. Therefore, one's relationship to God and Christ is manifested through one's relationship to the church And her message to oppose the church and the gospel is to set yourself as an opponent opponent of God. To put it another way, there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. There's only one way to come into union with Christ, and that's faith. Again, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing the word of God. What word of God? The word preached. The word preached by who? Those who were sent. Who sins? The church. The sending unit on earth, God's ministry on the earth right now, is the local church. Not the primary sending unit. The only sending unit. The church. So to oppose is to stand against the one means. The one means that's been given. I'll illustrate it this way. Imagine that all of the governments of the world decided that we're going to collect all of the water of the world and put them into one global tower. The only way to get any water is to come to this tower. If you say, I'm not going to that tower, you have sealed your fate. In three days you're dead. That's what's happened here. Christ has instituted His church. The one means. The one vehicle of truth. This is why people in the past had no problem saying there is no salvation outside of the church. Who else has the gospel? Who else has the preaching? Who else has the means of grace? Only Christ's church. Not Rome's church, Christ's church. The oracles of God have been taken from the synagogue of Satan and given to the church of Christ, a people producing its fruits. Not the parachurch organization. Not individual self-appointed street evangelists. Not bloggers and podcasters. Now that's not to, to condemn all of those necessarily, but I can hear... Or you can go hear a presentation from a parachurch organization and say, I see what you're doing. It's just not my cup of tea. And go home in right standing with God. You can walk down the street and hear a self-appointed preacher preaching and say, hey, I see what you're doing, but this is just not my cup of tea. And go home in good standing with God. You can read a blog or listen to a podcast and say, I hear what they're saying, but that's just not my cup of tea. And lay down your head at night confident that Christ is yours. But if you come into the assembly of the saints and you're enlightened as to the truth of the scriptures, you get a taste of the heavenly gift, you experience the powers of the Holy Spirit, you hear the goodness of the Word of God, and you experience the powers of the age to come, and you walk out the door and say, That's just not for me. You've sealed your fate. You've sealed your fate. And I do think, told Austin this week, I think that whole section in Hebrews right there, I think we could summarize that up by saying, if you come to church, and you leave and you reject that, there's no room for repentance. You don't come back from that. Because there's no other means, no other methodology than the church of Jesus Christ. Now how is this specifically manifested? In other words, In what specific ways does the church represent Christ on the earth in such a way that provides an end-time opportunity for men to reveal their true standing with God? I've just alluded to them. The church's presence and the church's preaching. First, in her presence. The declaration of men standing with God is shown forth as they are confronted with the very presence of the church. True church. The presence of the church as God's ministry on the earth is a witness to the ongoing ministry of God on the earth. The church being here in existence says there is a God. There is salvation available for men. Here are the people. Their very existence, their gathering and worshiping is evidence of a real saving God who has mercy on sinners. Look at these people. They're singing to the One who's redeemed them. The church is God's vehicle for truth. The church is God's discipleship factory where we're sanctified through the means of grace. The church is God's field and God's building where the gifts of the Spirit are used in a unique way in the ongoing construction of the temple. We are here. And in the assembly, there's a diversity of gifts in operation that can't be found anywhere else on planet earth. You... As an individual, do not have the fullness of the gifts given to the church. You don't have it by yourself. We can think of some holy men. The Apostle Paul in prison. Where did he want to be? He wanted to be with the saints. David, over. and A man after God's own heart. Over and over and over. I just want to get into the congregation. I just want to be with the assembly. I just want to be in Zion where the people gather. And so, as men, women, boys, and girls come into close contact with the church on earth, they're being brought to a point of decision. They're being brought to the bar of God. When people come into the assembly, Christ says, These are my people. Sort of shows them around. These are mine. These are my people. Hear these songs? These are my songs. Christ says, You hear that word they're preaching? That's my word. This is is my wife. This is my bride. She might have a lot of things that that need to be worked out. But I don't have any other bride than this one. And in that interaction, a person's heart is opened. Their condition is brought to light. They're made to see. They ought to be able to see a people very unlike them. When they come into the gathering of the saints, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, An outsider enters in. He's convicted and called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And he has to make a decision. Am I going to hang around these people? As weird as this feels, I've never felt anything like this. Or am I going to go back to my lifestyle and say, you people are nuts. A decision has to be made. Am I going to take their God as my God or am I going to return to Moab and worship the idols there? Like the ark of God before Dagon in the assembly amongst the manifold gifts of Christ, our own idols come crashing down and we have to decide, am I going to continue here? Or am I going to say, I think I'll just remove myself to another place. The presence of the church is a confrontation to men. And again, I'll add that in these days, as churches meet, in spite of government edicts, they are standing as an open witness on the bench against those who are opposing them. It's happening. Judgment is happening. It's a witness against them. The presence and continued worship of the church is a judgment upon those who would oppose them. That sheriff's deputy that came here, he's going to answer for what he said. He's going to answer for what he tried to do. And the sheriff above him, and the governor above him, and however far you want to trace that up, they will answer for coming to Christ's church and saying, you shouldn't be meeting today. It's being, it's being laid out. It's, it's in clear sight for us to see. The presence of the church gives men this opportunity. As they ride down the road, whichever way they're going with the dirt bikes and four-wheelers or fishing boats or whatever, as they ride down the road driving and cars sit idle and empty in this parking lot, that's a witness to them every time they see the sign and the cars. People are worshiping in that room. They're worshiping the God who made heaven and earth. They're, ma- they're worshiping the King who sit- seated upon His throne. And here I am off to my, my life. Off to catch some fish or jump some jumps or whatever. It's judgment against them. It will stand against them in the judgment. You saw them. You saw the sign. You saw the cars. There were people there. The second most explicit occasion for judgment is in preaching. Specifically, in the message that is proclaimed, as we proclaim it, men are given the occasion to accept or reject the Christ of the church. We know from Scripture that the Word of God has, has divine power. Romans 1.16, it's the gospel, it's the power unto salvation. In Isaiah 55, it doesn't return void, but always accomplishes that for which God has uh, sent it. There is a, a power in the Word to... to For positive or even for negative. In Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart. That sounds bad, right? They were cut to the heart, but what happened? They said, what do we have to do to be saved? And they were redeemed right then. That was good. The the Word, when accompanied by the Spirit, has power for good, but we also know that it has power for bad. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. The preaching of Christ. You come into the room dead in trespasses and sins and you hear it and you spurn it and you reject it and you put it off and you say, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe. That gospel is hammering you further into the grave. Death unto death. Acts chapter 7, as Stephen preached, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. The proclamation of the Word angered them. It had a power. Not for good. It made them mad. In Acts 24, verse 25, Paul reckoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. It says Felix was alarmed, angered. Felix was, was shocked, terrified. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll I'll summon you. I I just need you to step away. The proclamation of the gospel is often an occasion where the hearts of men are softened or hardened. Their, Their state is eternally changed, for better or for worse, in the preaching of the gospel. The message itself contains the subject matter of that divine declaration. In other words, a particular portion of what we preach, when we say I'm preaching the gospel, a particular portion of that is you are a sinner. Christ is a Savior. If you reject Christ, you will spend eternity in a lake of fire apart from God. We, we declare that to men. We can declare to men, if you will not come, you will remain in your sin. And they, they may, but it has no power behind it. They, they, they cannot respond and say, well, that's just your opinion. That's just your interpretation. No, that's God's word. Greg Beale says, quote, encoded in the church's prophetic message is the declaration of spiritual death for all those rejecting the witness. So we preach the gospel. That gives the opportunity. We preach the gospel. We actually say it. If you don't turn, you're, d- you're condemned. And so when men reject that, that comes with divine judgment. We see in the, in the Gospels, Christ commands men, hey, if they won't listen, shake the dust off your feet. That is a testimony to them. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give dogs what is holy. You preach, and when they reject that, that's it. There's no other option but to respond to the preaching of the Gospel. An actual authoritative divine declaration of one standing with God is manifested in time through their relationship with and response to the church and her message. Why? Because in the presence and preaching of the church, men in this age are brought into closer proximity to the manifest presence of God on earth than in any other way. There's no other way. The power of God is shown in the presence and preaching of the church in a greater way than if He recreated the cosmos before their eyes. It's greater than that. The wisdom of God is shown in the presence and preaching of the church in a greater way than if people would come back from the dead and say, trust me, it's true. All they're saying is true. No, if they won't believe this Word, they, don't, they wouldn't believe if someone came back from the dead. The, the irony, think of the irony here, is that, that the, through the presence and preaching of the church, the power and wisdom of God is displayed in a way that it's never been displayed before. And that presence in preaching is the most despised thing. They, they hate the preaching. They hate the church. That, that's what they can't get over. I don't like that you're preaching at me. I like a preacher to preach with me. No, I'm preaching at you. They don't like that. Well, y'all, y'all get, you have to get together and you, you sing and those types of things. That, that institution, you know, with your, your form I don't like that. Well, Christ has instituted a church. That most despised thing is the only vehicle to bring to men the the remedy for their greatest need. The things that are most weak in the world, weak, pitiful men, are used to display the greatness and the power of God. Think of this. When the Gospel is preached, Romans 10, Christ is brought near. A near Christ, to reject a near Christ, brings greater, greater condemnation than to reject a distant Christ. When the gospel is preached, sins are made more clear. So to cling to sins more clear is a greater condemnation than to cling to sins you didn't know, sins unseen. When the gospel is preached, God Himself is made more clearly known. To reject a God clearly set forth brings greater judgment than to reject an unknown God. When the Gospel is preached, damnation is more clearly explained. To continue in a pathway more illumined will bring greater judgment than to walk in darkness as if you didn't know where you were going. When the Gospel is preached by men who are themselves evidence of the saving power of God, that's going to bring greater judgment Because an evidence, evidence given by a witness, must be more resolutely denied than no evidence at all. When there's evidence laid before you, well, I I choose to reject that anyway. That brings a greater judgment. And in the gathering of the church, what do we have? Multiple witnesses, multiple evidences... Saying, Christ is brought near. Sins made more clear. God made more clearly known. Damnation more clearly explained, displayed. Multiple witnesses. So to come into the assembly and reject multiple witnesses, multiple testimonies, brings greater condemnation than if there were no witnesses at all. Or just one. It's a dangerous thing to come into the society of God's presence among men. So then, take heart, if you're a Christian, take heart in the solidarity. Take comfort in the solidarity that we have with Christ. For believers, this should be a comforting truth. Though the world may trample the church, we might seem insignificant to the world, God sees, God's watching. Christ takes it personally. Every act against the church, Christ takes as an act against Himself. We have an advocate in heaven who stands in such close solidarity with His church that when men would harm the church, He says, why are you persecuting me? He takes it personally. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Not ashamed to identify with us. When the saints of God suffer... There are human bowels of compassion at the right hand of the majesty that turn within Him in tender solidarity to His weak ones who are being persecuted. Because He's already trod this path before us. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. His presence. Here's the judgment. He came. They didn't want Him. John 7:7, 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In his preaching and in his, presence, in his presence, that was judgment upon men. We don't want to hear it, we want to kill you. They sealed their fate. They hated him, and their treatment of him was the judgment. Divine declaration was made when Christ came in, when Christ preached, and men rejected. So it is with his body. We're here, we're preaching. Men reject, men oppose, men persecute. That's judgment. Why? Because He takes it personally. He's with us. Secondly, be hopeful that God will vindicate His people. These end time manifestations of the wickedness of men's hearts are merely precursors to what is going to happen on the final day if they do not repent. To quote Beale again, rejection of the testimony of the church lays the basis for future consummative judgment. God will vindicate his people, in other words. Not one bruise or scratch or belittled esteem is going to go unpunished. Christ takes it personally and he will execute judgment in a personal way. He takes it personally, he will inflict it personally. In the judgment, And for all of eternity, men will not suffer as if they just did some bad things and contradicted this this notion of a law or a rule out there somewhere. It's a personal inflicted judgment for sins against a personal individual God. You sinned against me. I am going to punish you for what you've done to me. God will vindicate His people. And then lastly, recognize the gravity of being a part of the church. It is a dangerous and yet a blessed thing to be in close proximity to the society of God's promised presence among men. We have a a, a very great treasure. While it might seem monotonous, Because of God's consecration of it among those who draw near the church of Jesus Christ is a sanctified assembly and through the church before all people God is being glorified. We might not notice it right now. We might not be able to see all of the ways that He's being glorified. But He's being glorified right now. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Even now, in the spiritual realm, God's wisdom is being displayed through the church. And when the veil is torn back on that day, all men will see what they were toying with as they interacted with the church. Our interactions with the world might seem unprofitable. Defeat and death might seem inevitable. Remember, God is carrying out divine judgment through our presence and through our preaching. So they kill us, okay? We win whoever is faithful unto death that's the victor so they kill us we win and they undergo judgment so it was with Israel in Canaan they went in to inflict God's judgment they failed so we just heard so it was with Christ who did not fail so it is now through the church who through Christ always gets the victory we can't lose we can't lose for winning because Christ has already accomplished the victory. Let's pray.